Hey, all you gritty nurses. We wanted to share an amazing opportunity for RPNs and PSWs in Ontario. Designed in partnership with the Government of Ontario, WeRPN's Bridging Educational Grant and Nursing Program, also known as BEGIN, is a tuition reimbursement program for eligible students enrolled in bridging programs. So what is BEGIN all about? The program is designed for PSWs and RPNs looking to bridge to RPN and RN roles and willing to commit to working in Ontario's long-term care or home and community care sectors. After graduating, program participants agree to commit to a year of employment in either sector for every year or a portion of the year they received begin funding. That actually sounds amazing. I've never heard of anything like this before. What do you get out of it? PSW bridging to RPN can get up to 6000 per year to cover tuition and mandatory fees for a maximum of 15000 over three years. And RPN to RN or PSW to RN students can get up to $10,000 per year or maximum of $30,000 over three years. The best part is these are grants so as long as you commit to your postgraduate service agreement, you don't have to pay the money back. Are there any other benefits? Participants also qualify for additional financial assistance while enrolled to help with costs such as caring for dependents, tutoring, and travel. BEGIN participants are paired with a dedicated case manager to support them on their journey in the program. They can also access free resources and support such as online NCLEX or REXPN exam prep courses, career counseling, resume support, and a dedicated job board. Upon graduation, WeRPN will connect BEGIN graduates to employment opportunities in the long-term care and home and community care sectors of Ontario, where they can make a huge difference. This can open the doors for so many PSWs and RPNs. I really want to learn more. What should I do next? If you're interested, go to begin.wearpn.com or email info at begin.wearpn.com to learn about how BEGIN can provide you funding to expand your career and find meaningful work in Ontario's long-term care and home and community care sectors. Hello, is this thing on? Of course it is. They can definitely hear us. Yeah, we're in our fourth season. There's no silencing us now. Welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion on health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And I'm Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. Please make sure that you subscribe to our new YouTube channel where you can watch our podcast in video format. Please hit the subscribe button. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, leave us a rating and review. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to and joining into the Greeners podcast. We have such an exceptional um topic today we have to talk about this it's actually been on our radar for probably what would we say like a year uh, I would say over a year, a year maybe yeah. maybe even longer and um we'd be remiss if we did not talk about this case it's it means a lot to us and i think this is now just the perfect time to have this conversation and this 
this discussion. So before I get into it, of course, I'm going to hand it over to Sarah to tell you who we have as a guest and what we're talking about today. Sarah, take it away. Actually, it's been really great that we found this guest because she has a lot of uh, thoughts and opinions on the case we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Amanda Galino, who is a critical care clinical nurse specialist who's been practicing as a nurse for 16 years. Her expertise is in adult critical care. She has worked in both trauma and medical ICUs and has published numerous nursing research studies on topics such as non-pharmacologic pain management, as well as opinion pieces on racism in nursing and the FDA ban on MSM blood donors. Welcome, Amanda. We're so glad to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here and talk about this. So we were just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about yourself and your background in nursing. Sure. Um, so my background is all ICU. Um, so I started out as a new grad in a trauma ICU and worked there for about three years and then transferred to a med surge ICU for about close to five years. And then after that, I became a clinical nurse specialist, and I've been doing that since about 2014. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and again, it's it's always good to have people who work in the field in this area to have this conversation with. And I think that the, the next thing that we kind of want to get into and have a better understanding about is the case right. with Don Quinnick. So could you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in the case and who Don Quinnick actually is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I became knowledgeable about this case. It was probably almost a year ago. So I want to say maybe April or May of 2022. And I first heard about this case on Nurse Twitter, which is where I get a lot of really good information and hear kind of a lot of different things about the pulse, I guess you could say, of nursing. Some nurse colleagues of mine had first shared the Denver Post article about Don Quinique. And that was really the first time I had heard about it. So primarily on nurse Twitter, I didn't really hear about it in any of the other venues where I get a lot of information. And it was sort of in the backdrop of one of the other big cases that people were really talking about, which was Redonda. And I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about her because I think that case was talked about pretty extensively last year. But Certainly as a comparison between the two, the attention that that case received versus this case is very interesting to talk about, and, and I definitely have some thoughts about that. But for this case, um, I first heard about it through some nursing advocates that I talk to fairly regularly, and just the, the details about the case really shook me and really made me think about a lot of things that we all encounter in nursing and some of the kind of hard truths that we haven't really faced as a profession. And so that's kind of really where I first heard about it. And the thread that I made in, in that May of last year was me trying to pull all the different info about the case into one spot. Yeah, I think that's that's good that um, that you're so connected to this case because, like you said, there was so much more attention paid to Redonda that even when I was doing research for this episode, I found very few articles compared to like what you would find if you did a search on Redonda. So it just, I think we can get uh, more into it as we go through the episode. But again, it just highlights the differences that you will see when it comes to you know comparing one nurse to another. And I think that it's also really important because it's happening at a really critical time in nursing.
nursing, where nursing is in the spotlight right now for a lot of times negative news. And I don't want this to be a negative episode, but it's just really, it's really sad what has happened to Dawn. And maybe like, maybe we can kind of go through the specific specifics of this case. I did pull up that Denver Post article and maybe uh, I can read it out and you can sort of insert any other thoughts that you have on this. But basically, uh, Dawn Quinnick Joppy, she was charged in 2020 with manslaughter, negligent death of an at-risk person and neglect of an at-risk person in the death of a 94-year-old patient in intensive care at the medical center of Aurora. These charges came more than a year after she was fired over the same patient's death. And uh, according to the lawsuit, it claims that the hospital's investigation into this man's death was racially biased. This man died on May 24, 2019, after coming to the hospital with evidence of septic shock and multi-organ failure. And he was put on a ventilator before the man's family decided to move him to the ICU for palliative care. He came into uh, Don Quinnick's care toward the end of her overnight shift on a day when the ICU was understaffed. And she actually stayed two hours past the end of her shift, which ended at 7 a.m. to care for the man. Around 8 a.m., a doctor gave a verbal order for end-of-life measures to another nurse, who then delegated the order to Joppy, according to the lawsuit. So she called a respiratory therapist and followed his instructions to turn off the ventilator. Then it goes on to say the patient died, and his death certificate says he died of natural causes and specifically septic shock. So it looks like Don Quinnick acted um, on a verbal and not a documented order to carry out this intervention. Joppy has yet to recover from the ordeal. So I'm just going to pause here and maybe, uh, Amanda, you can kind of insert your thoughts or if I've missed anything into this uh, conversation. Yeah, the the Denver Post article has um, probably the most accurate overview of the case. There is, you can obtain the full lawsuit, which is a federal EEOC uh, lawsuit in the Colorado courts. So if anybody who's listening to this really wants to kind of go deeper, it's it's about 20 pages, so it's pretty lengthy. But everything that I'm sharing today is is all information that's out there on the internet. It's just that you know, folks haven't really obviously had the time to look through it all and have it all in one place. And so that's why this is a really great venue for folks to hear more about it. I think, you know, what's really important to understand, and if you read the the lawsuit, you kind of get a better sense of like what kind of work environment this was. So this all happened before COVID. So it was 2019. Don Quinique was an ICU nurse. And when you read about her as a person, as a nurse, she was someone who had received lots of accolades, received, you know, positive comments from patients that she provided really good patient care. She's what you would call a nurse's nurse, like was really in there taking care of her patients and really found a lot of, you know, enjoyment out of providing that basic nursing care that people really need. And she had been nominated three times for DAISY Awards. So, you know, typically people who get nominated for DAISY Awards are people who, you know, patients or families remember for something really special. At the time that she worked in this ICU, she only worked there for about two years. So in that time frame, um, she had received these three DAISY nominations. She also had a performance evaluation, just one during that time frame that, you know, didn't say a whole lot, but said that she was obviously qualified and doing her job. And then another thing that she had done was she was a nurse who was out there in her community 
and she was teaching people CPR. So a local news station actually did a story about how she was out teaching CPR. And I think they called it like a heart saver award or something like that. So this was someone, yeah. So this is someone who, you know, was definitely a pillar of the community who was a really good nurse. Um, You know, there isn't really anything negative reported about her performance. In the lawsuit, it really helps explain the unit culture that, you know, she was working under because there's numerous instances when she was in this ICU talking about different things that happened to her. And they all seem to be, if not overt racism, I I guess you could say covert (laughs) racism. She alleges that she was accused of theft um, by a patient that was completely unfounded. But while that was being investigated, she was restricted from using the, the nursing staff lounge during that time. Yeah, it was something like an accusation about stealing a patient's credit card to buy a stethoscope, which sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty bizarre. Um, and it was unfounded. There was another incident where she was trying to go to some like additional training. I believe it was for like cardiac specific things in ICU, you know, like there's different types of training that people have um, or different skill sets. And she was denied that. And it was, you know, said to her something like she didn't have good organizational skills. So that was another incident that occurred was, um, I'm not really able to visualize what the, the unit layout was, but something to the effect of that she was regularly um, isolated from her peers and put in like a different part of the ICU where it was really difficult to get other coworkers to help her. So she was kind of, you know, stuck in that part of the unit where, you know, and I don't know what other folks' background is, but generally, you know, if you're working in an ICU or an ER, um, you really need to have good teamwork to be successful. You can't really reposition dependent patients easily by yourself. You know, just when patients are crashing and things like that, you know, it's kind of, it takes a team. So if if you have a a unit culture where people are kind of isolating you off into different sections, that makes that unit, you know, not a very positive place to work. But those are just, you know, kind of some of the background, which I think kind of makes sense as to what leads into this event of this patient's death. So it was around two years that she worked there. And this happened, I think, in May, and she was terminated in June. And this patient that came in, um, it's my understanding he was a DNR coming in. But, you know, sometimes when patients come in, families will, you know, call 911 or what have you, they'll get brought in and then there's a rapid change in the code status. So everything gets done initially. And then there's a discussion with the family, like, hey, is this what you really, you know, want to do? The patient's not doing well. And then there was a rapid de-escalation in care. So I don't know, you know, what a lot of your viewers or listeners are familiar with, but that's fairly common that someone will kind of get everything in the kitchen sink initially And then that care will get rapidly de-escalated if a family says, hey, we want to stop. This is not what we wanted. It talks about in the the lawsuit how, you know, the doctor talked to the family and the family was like, you know, this is not what we want for our loved one. You know, we, we don't want, you know, the ventilator, all the vasopressors, all these things for septic shock. Um, This isn't what the patient would have wanted. And we would like to transition to comfort care. 
So th that's all very routine things that happen, whether it's the ER, the medical surgical unit, um, the ICU, people will change from aggressive care to comfort care. So it, it's kind of odd to me that like if you hear other nurses talking about that, sometimes you'll hear other nurses saying, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe they just withdrew care on this patient. And that, that happens very frequently, at least in my experience. I don't know about you all's, but, um, you know, working in the ICU, we, we have that abrupt change. I think what kind of got maybe messy in this case was it was night shift into day shift. It talks about there being um, the unit was short staffed. And it sounds like Don Quinique had this patient coming up from the ER to the ICU, and then she stayed to kind of help the day shift as they took over, which again, that happens pretty often. That's just like a nice thing to do <laughs> for the next shift, you know, kind of help them with kind of getting things settled. So I think that's kind of where the, maybe the chaos of the situation occurred is that you know, the patient was getting everything, then the patient's family said, no, we want to stop. So how that became a manslaughter charge <laughs> is very bizarre again. But this nurse, the nurse who was taking care of the patient during the day was putting in the verbal orders from the doctor saying, you know, we're going to stop the vasopressors, we're going to stop the ventilator, we're going to transition the patient to comfort. I believe there was some orders for like Versed or something else for comfort. That's again, pretty standard. And so all of the aggressive measures were stopped. The patient passed away. And then there was some back and forth between the nurse, uh, Don Quinique, who was helping, the respiratory therapist, as far as like, who's going to do what. And so I think that's maybe where the confusion was. But for that to become a manslaughter charge, to me, is a little strange. And it doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't know about the background of how toxic this environment was that Don Quinique was working in. And then when you hear that, it makes a little more sense because it sounds like her coworkers reported this as a suspicious death that she was involved in, but really there wasn't anything suspicious about it. You know, if you read in the lawsuit, the family actually said, that they thought Don Quinique provided great care to their loved one. She was there helping him as he passed away with the family. So there really wasn't anything untoward, but it became something that was investigated after the fact and led to information. Yeah, it sounds to me like there's a lot of different things that we need to kind of touch on and kind of mm -hmm. unpack in terms of that situation. Uh, the first thing I would think of is it's kind of almost like no good deed goes unpunished, right? right. Like we as nurses tend to want to help other yeah. shifts. So it's like, okay, we know your short staff, her staying additionally was a good deed. Yep. And now it was like a punishable deed. The other piece is, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about it. And I'd love to hear your take as well as mm -hmm. kind of what the politics are out there in terms of verbal orders. But here it's kind of the same um, sense where, it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we get verbal orders from physicians. They might not be on site or they might not be on the unit in that particular time when we're calling them for an order, but we're always told. And I think, and, and I'd love to hear kind of from the U S perspective, what, what's, what's your standing on verbal orders as well. 
where we're pretty much told that we shouldn't take verbal orders. But again, it's a part of the business of healthcare where we get verbal orders all the time. And again, depending on your comfort level, your experience, how you've worked with these practitioners before, whether it's a physician or whomever, it'll be dependent on how you go about, you know, working with that verbal order. From my understanding from the CNO, so the College of Nurses of Ontario here in Canada, we're not supposed to take verbal orders. So it happens all the time, but we're not supposed to take Mm -hmm. them. Or if a verbal order comes in, we need to make sure that that document is signed off. I don't know about your experience, Sarah, but I remember when, like Mm -hmm. when I worked in labor and delivery and whenever we got a verbal order, I was probably that bitchy nurse (laughs) that was like, yeah, I'll wait till you show up, write this down, sign it off before I actually enact anything. And again, that's where that whole like no good deed goes unpunished because it is a part of the business. There are no structures put in place to prevent um, this from occurring because we know it happens all the time. And then again, when you're trying to help out as a member of the team, now you're being punished for an action that tends to be normalized within the healthcare system. Yeah, and I think there's what's supposed to happen on paper versus what happens in, in real reality. life. Yeah. So, so many times I've been in emergency situations where there's an emergency verbal order given over the phone. And then the minute the physician walks into the unit, like if you're on paper charting, you're there like, hey, sign this before you come on or like get to this computer and sign it off. But, you know, that's not always reality. So I guess like we're just wondering your thoughts on this whole verbal order versus documented order situation. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I would agree with both of you. It's it's one of those things where, so in my experience, I've been using um, like Epic, for example, as a platform for a long time. And when, you know, there was kind of like the initial changeover, it was like, you know, the, the rule is no more verbal orders. Everything, you know, needs to get entered by the provider. And the only exceptions are, um, you know, in an emergency or if they're tied up, you know, if they're like in surgery or driving or something like that. And I think that's probably the rule in most places. I can't speak to this organization because I don't work there. But to your point, the actual practice of that is very, very different in reality. And I think uh, particularly in the ER and the ICU, when there's rapid uh, patient changes and lots of things happening uh, with folks um, maybe not, you know, coding in an official capacity, but when someone's on high dose vasopressors like this patient was, they're kind of getting a chemical code because they're, you know, basically dependent on those vasopressors to have a pulse and a blood pressure. And if they were to stop or run out of the bag, they would probably code. So they're pretty sick. They're pretty unstable. There's probably a lot of different orders and things flying around. So it, you know, theoretically, yes, should you always wait to have that order in the chart? Sure. But, you know, if you had a family sitting there in front of you and they were like, please stop. He doesn't want this. We want to let him go. You know that the doctor had the conversation and the family has said to stop, you do kind of walk that line also of it becoming assault. Because when a family says stop, we also have to stop very abruptly. And that can be tough when you don't have, you know, everything wrapped up in a nice bow like you should. And so I do think in healthcare, we kind of set people up for failure because yeah, on paper, everybody's supposed to have all these things in place. And sometimes, you know, life happens and 
and our work environments are so chaotic. So, you know, it sounds like this was a chaotic shift. It was happening at the change of shift, which is never good. You know, I think, you know, if you wanted to argue like, yes, should you always wait? I think that argument could be made. But what it sounds like is that everyone knew this patient's family wanted to withdraw care. The patient was really very tenuous and barely, you know, there as a overall, you know, he, he immediately passed away when they turned everything off so that, you know, he was a very, very sick person. So it just doesn't sound like any kind of anything nefarious that was going on or, you know, an intentional, anything malicious. It, you know, if you wanted to kind of focus in on the orders being an issue, that could be the case. But it doesn't really make sense either that Don Quinique would have been the focus when she wasn't even the primary nurse at that point. That was, you know. A hundred percent. And I think there's a couple other things to dig into, right? Like the whole treatment or mistreatment, I should say, of Don Quinique by her, her, her peers. Like it right. sounded to me like your classic textbook nursing bullying. And then what made it 10 times worse probably were those added assaults of racist harm or racist abuse. And I think to myself, this is a conversation that nursing needs to have within its profession. Like it's, it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. Just the, just the bullying alone is a huge problem, but the racism is this added element that we don't even talk about very much. And we should, because again, the social, we talk about social determinants of health. We Mm -hmm within working in our workplaces can still be affected and our determinants can be affected as well. And we're talking about the social determinant health of racism and how that impacts the way you go about doing your daily work and the things that you have to do to care for a patient and a client. Mm-hmm. And then again, just feeling that I could only imagine, cause I remember my own instances of bullying going into an environment every time or a shift where I, I actually do remember that I'm saying that even some of her nursing ratios were off too. Like yep. the, the ratios are supposed to be, you know, one, I think it was like one to one or maybe two to one. Mm-hmm. And I was seeing that she was getting like maybe two or three patients in an ICU, yep. which is not typical. And then again, being isolated. I remember that happening to me where essentially, you know, there was the team over there and I was, you know, put into a far room away from everybody. And again, that, that creates animosity and no, I shouldn't say animosity, but that creates that tension where you know that you're not being supported within that work field. And so I feel like there was a lot of different things at play and I kind of feel like the staff didn't support her because it's, again, it did sound like it was the staff who ended up reporting her at the end of the day. And again, this manslaughter charge, like you said, makes absolutely no sense. It, I don't understand where it's coming from. And again, I just think that there are greater factors and greater things at play. I find this all very strange because the fact is the family was happy with the care that he received. So this lawsuit didn't even come from the family, but yet it's been pushed forward and it's actually gone all the way through. And I just, it just seems to me like such a waste of resources when we have so many other issues in healthcare that we're actually, you know, we're wasting resources on this case where the family, like in the, in this case, the nurse actually did what the family wanted and is still suffering the consequences. Yeah, wasting time and also destroying her life. Like what is happening with Don Quinnick right now? Yeah, so those are all really good points. One thing I, I wanted to mention just before I talk about um, what's going on now 
is in the mix of all of this. So this happened, I think, in May. You know, a lot of folks have said, well, if the, if the unit was so terrible, if it was so awful, why didn't she leave? Well, she actually did try to leave. Even if she hadn't, I don't know that that would have <laughs> mattered. But I think um, she actually tried to go into the float pool in, I think it was that March of 2019. So a couple months before this happened. And when she tried to transfer out of this unit to the float pool, then all of a sudden she was put on a performance improvement plan. And that was the only time that she had been put on this uh, performance improvement plan. A lot of people call them PIPs. And basically, you know, that's usually for some kind of disciplinary reason. But in her case, this was really the first time, you know, she had been put on a PIP. Didn't really specify why. Um, there weren't any concerns about her performance. And because of being put on that PIP, then she couldn't leave and go to the float pool either. So she was kind of stuck, you know, in this kind of toxic culture on top of not being able to transfer out. And that was only two months before this incident. So I think it kind of helps to understand that background, you know, of all these different things that were going on because. Otherwise, on the surface, you know, it doesn't make sense either way. But then when you hear that, you're like, okay, there was just a lot there. And that bullying, you know, all that different um, dynamics that was that were happening. Um, as far as now, so this, this happened in 2019 when Don Clinique was fired. And I think it was June. Around the same time, you know, the charges were filed. Um, so now it's 2023. Her lawsuit for um, against the workplace was filed last year, so it's been about a year. I, I'm not super familiar with like how long lawsuits take when they go through the federal system, but suffice to say, it's still undergoing. It's still underway, so it's been kind of a slow process. But she has been in court and had has had to go under um, deposition. So, you know, getting sworn in and speaking about her experiences. And then there's also been other interviews of other folks who are involved in the case. So her case is still underway. It's been a long time, almost four years since the original events occurred. And I think what really stands out to me is this happened in 2019. And then in 2020 is when COVID hit that spring. During that time, you know, she hasn't worked since uh, this occurred. And, you know, that's another question people will ask, well, why doesn't she just go get another job? Because the charges were dismissed against her. But if you've ever had, I would imagine, manslaughter charges against you as a nurse, that would kind of uh, make it difficult for you to get another job. Um, you know, I haven't applied for a job recently, but I would think if anyone does any kind of background check and pulls your name, they're going to come across that whether it was dismissed or not. And then the other thing that's been asked is like, does she still have a nursing license? And the answer is yes, she still has a valid Colorado nursing license. Yeah, I mean, I, again, all those those points that you made are valid. I, I just want to do circle back to like one particular point where you mentioned, you know, um, the whole mentality of why, why doesn't she leave? And I, again, this is, this is where I kind of think about, you know, aspects of racism, where it's like, if you don't like it here, why don't you leave? Well, again, at the end of the day, if the problem isn't the individual and it's the system, it's the system that needs to be fixed. And it shouldn't be that the person has to leave. It's, it's, it should be that 
they're looking at a bigger problem here and they should be dealing with that. So I just wanted to throw that in. But the other piece, like you mentioned, is the whole fact that even with her man, did you say that the manslaughter, um, it has been dropped? Yes. So those charges were dropped. I'm not 100% sure what year that was because the charges were pressed in middle of 2019 and they were ultimately dropped in the interest of justice. So that's a pretty strong statement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so it kind of sounds like as quickly as it came about was as quickly as it was let go. And I don't have all the details about why, um, you know, the DA or whoever, you know, took it forward. You know, they didn't really go into super great depths about why, but just the fact that it was stated that was in the interest of justice, to me, kind of is like a mic drop right there. Like, yeah, that's crazy. So, so like where, so what is happening with her right now? One of the things I did see is that like, she's almost on the brink of houselessness, which is, which is horrifying. I mean, I guess this is an event that would precipitate a situation in which, you know, she's having difficulty recovering from. I think anybody Mm -hmm. would have difficulty recovering from the situation. So you like what like what is she doing now is she like I know you said she's not able to work but how like how can we support what are some things that we can do or you know what exactly is happening yeah so um she has in the last couple of years had experiences uh being unhoused so she has had uh periods of time where she's been homeless she currently does have a safe place um to stay to your point, she, she has not been able to work. And I think, um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm a white woman, so I've never experienced this level of, um, racism and and bullying. But I think, you know, if you really read through the things that she was experiencing on this unit, she has a lot of trauma from the events. And then not only what, what happened, but then being charged with a crime you didn't commit you know, at one point there was an investigation into her license, which has, you know, since concluded and she still has it, but, you know, not being able to work, losing, you know, her livelihood, her, you know, family for that time frame, being unhoused. Um, it's just been a really difficult couple of years. And the thing that I think about being an ICU nurse is how badly we needed someone like her at the bedside during COVID and we, we right. didn't have her. Um, And it's not because of, you know, like in some of these other cases, everyone's kind of rallied against the system. But in this case, it was us and particularly people, unfortunately, who look like me that really perpetrated this violence against her. And I think that's why there's probably hesitation uh, in folks speaking about this case, because it kind of forces people to look in the mirror and not everyone's ready unfortunately for that but it's happening and it's it's not fair and it's not right we do have a fundraiser currently um, that we're working on right now it's um to help with her legal fees uh because as you can imagine um there's a lot of need for like expert witnesses and different you know costs involved with a lawsuit of this nature and she's obviously going up against a large organization that has a lot of resources. She does have, you know, like um, Venmo and Cash App if folks just wanted to send her some cash to help her with her living expenses and things like that. Really, you know, talking with her and, you know, having met her in this last year or so, 
I think, you know, another reason that she was targeted is she's just a very different person. And I mean that in a great way. She's very genuine. She's very uh, deeply spiritual, um, quotes the Bible often, really just a fantastically genuine person. And I hate to say it, but I think that sometimes people target folks just because of their differences. And she Mm -hmm. certainly is somebody who stands out as an individual, but to me, in a really positive way, as someone who has just this really great character and just as a really, you know, loving, wonderful person. And it just kind of makes it that much worse that this happened to her because, you know, she's someone that the nursing profession is, you know, we lost out as a profession because of this happening to her and her not being able to go back to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so great that you could share all these different aspects of her that we didn't know. And we'd be happy to uh, put in some of those links, you know, to her Venmo or Cash App or whatever fundraiser you've organized. We want to be able to amplify her story and hopefully send some more support her way. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to share that. And that would be really appreciated, I think, you know, just as the um, case continues on, it it could be a while longer. So um, that would be really great, you know, as a way of helping her out and, you know, kind of take for folks to take a step forward and do something actionable. Is there any other like key takeaways or anything else we should touch upon? Overall, as a, a nursing profession, it is a profession that's primarily white women. And, you know, I think there's been a lot more um, being said, particularly about the issues of racism in nursing. Some of the big organizations have come out and had um, statements, but overall, um, there really hasn't been a lot of uh, support, particularly for Don Quinique from the big organizations. And that's something that I would really like to see. And I would like to see you know, other nurses kind of putting some pressure, you know, folks put a lot of pressure um, in some of these other uh, cases for these organizations to come out and, and really say something and do something. So far, the med surge nurses organization has hosted a couple things about Don Quinique's story. But otherwise, that's really been it. There really hasn't been a lot of other support for her. That's something I would like to see. And I think if you are a member of a nursing organization like ANA or AACN, which is the critical care nurses one, you know, I would say reach out and ask for them to really kind of support a nurse. It's one thing to make a statement about racism, but this is a nurse who lost her career because of racism. So how about backing her up and, and you know, saying this is wrong, that this happened and we support her. That's something I would like to see. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to that part of the conversation we were talking about, Redonda Vought, right? Where we mm-hmm. were mentioning the fact that um, that case was highly publicized. I, yeah. I think it even got to a point where Redonda had an opportunity to kind of do a tell-all and share her side of the story. Right. And I don't remember seeing at all that element for um, Don Quinnick. So I think that, or Don Quinnick, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's very, very, that's, that's telling in itself that her story hasn't been told in the same way that Redonda's story was. And it's, it's very disappointing. And I hope that through this episode, Mm -hmm. through continued conversations, if we can amplify it, that we can maybe get some more attention to it, because I think that's an important thing to do. And then again, you know, shine a light into those dark areas where uh, racism is occurring within healthcare and within nursing as a profession. 
So thanks so much, Amanda, for coming on. Um, we really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad that Don Queenie has you as an advocate. We are standing behind her as well, and we will definitely continue to amplify her story and hope that uh, things improve for her. Yeah. Are there any links or any Twitter handles or Instagram things that people can follow up on this story or follow up with you or or, or, or Don Queenie herself um, in relation to what's happening? Yeah, um, some of the um, hashtags that we use kind of in support of Don Quinique are I stand with Don Quinique, racism in nursing, which, you know, it's we're using it in this case, but of course it's pertinent to other um, situations as well. And um, justice for DQ, she goes by DQ sometimes. So those are some of the different ones you might see if you go look on nurse Twitter. Um, there is also a Facebook group called Support for Don Clinique that I created. We have about 600 people in that right now. Um, and I will regularly share information, you know, if there's new articles or things like that. And there's also an Instagram um, account called Racism in Nursing, which features Don Quinique's story as well as, um, you know, some other cases that are out there. So those are a couple of different ways to get more info. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I hope that our guests take an uh, opportunity to look at all the links. We'll put them in the, in our show notes and thank you for sharing her story with us. And we hope to share it with some other folks and get this story amplified. Thanks so much for coming on uh, Amanda. Thank you for having me.